Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So That Happened is sponsored by MileIQ, the only mileage checker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Meow, 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 meow. So that happened has been invaded by cats. Someone please help us. We're crawling with cats. Meow. So that happened. This week, it's time to bid farewell to an old year and move on to a new one. And in a few short months at last, we're going to have the Iowa caucus, you know, and then the story we spent all of 2015 talking about could finally start. But some things aren't changing. The GOP, with Donald Trump at the head of its presidential field, is having a hot mic moment. But is this a dark cloud or a silver lining? Joining us to discuss this is our friend Anna Marie Cox of the Daily Beast and the New York Times and the Brouhaha podcast. Meanwhile, you know who else has a lot of unfinished business here at the end of the year? Congress, who continue to leave an absurd number of judicial vacancies unfilled. What, this again? Ah, but it gets even dumber. Remember how we're at war with ISIS? If you answered yes, could you maybe run for office? Finally, what other burning questions do we have about the coming year? Did Wall Street leave us any money? Did 2015 leave us any optimism? Will Zach Carter finally move out of his tent and into a real apartment? Finally, we can guarantee you some closure. <laughs> Sorry, wait, no, I, I apologize. My producer is, is telling me that we are actually not allowed to guarantee you closure. Sorry about that. I am allowed to say, however, that I'm Jason Lincolns, and I'm here with Huffington Post reporters Jen Bendry, Zach Carter, and Shaheen Nasirapur. And here's what happened first. Hi, everybody. And I think I can say... Happy New Year. Woo! Old Lang Syne. Pop the whatever you pop on New Year's Day to make things good. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Youth the Press. Welcome to So That Happened, a podcast about stuff that happened. Joining me in the studio is Zach Carter. Hi. Thank God 2015 is over. Yeah. It was a rough year. It was rough, rough for you because you were in the tent the whole year. That was a hard place to live. Yeah, in a we really in have got to find a home for Zach. Maybe that could be our wacky season-ending cliffhanger. Where, where I will live next year? <laughs> Old man McGee is going to foreclose on your tent, Zach. <laughs> yeah. And, and joining us over the phone is one of the podcast best friends, Anna Marie Cox. Oh, I. You guys are my my podcast best friends too. We are so, all. We're all united in friendship. 
These are the good things that happened in 2015. That's one thing right there. These two podcasts came There's along. love in the world. That's There's right. Love, every, love is all around. And these two podcasts love each other. These two podcasts can get gay married. That also happened in 2015. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know what our motto gay is? marriage for podcasts. Our, our collective motto is, we did our best. <laughs> <laughs> we did our best. Um, but we're going to talk about the past year that we're putting to bed. We're sending yes. to the grave. So what what do we like about the past year besides our amazing podcasts? The runaway success of our amazing podcasts. That was good. Uh Anna Marie, I'm I'm kind of down on the year. Do you have any any positive thoughts? Well, I mean, like I just said, actually, I mean gay marriage kind of or should say I should say marriage equality. No such thing as gay marriage anymore, actually. It's That's all just right. marriage. That's kinda huge, I would say. Pretty great. Big. That's pretty big. Um uh, it was also a great year for TV. <laughs> like, how much do we have to pay in politics? You know, the thing that I was going to say that I, I'm putting on, maybe I'll start with the thing that I would have said were bad until this year happened. And now in the full, full, full reflection of the year, Paul Ryan becoming Speaker of the House, I now, wow, like, if you told me that was going to happen a year ago, I'd have been like, well, that sounds like a bad thing. But you know what? Our year was so bad, I would put that up as a good thing. <laughs> I, I, yes. have, I have to say I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> Paul Ryan has kept his wits about him and has... Grown a hipster beard? Grown a hipster beard. He looks great with the beard. Okay, guys, yeah. look. I got I to gotta object here to this term hipster beard. All right, if whatever the term hipster means, if the Speaker of the House is doing it, <laughs> It's not hip, okay? It's not hipster anymore. He's grown a beard. He's he's grown a speaker's beard. Fair enough. Anybody who grows beards like that is not no longer cool. Like it's over. Okay. Fair All right. Enough. All right. It's, it's the end of the this hipster beard. But he did grow a beard. Let's say that. Looks pretty good with it. We got to. It does look pretty good. He does not look twelve anymore. I imagine that maybe had something to do with the, the beard growing. Um. But yeah, like that is again something that a while ago, if you told me Paul Ryan he's going to become speaker of the house. I would have thought that would be a, not a great thing because he's not a person that I have a lot in common with politically. Um, but now he seems like a sane and rational choice, and that does say something about how far we've we've sunk in terms of our political dialogue. But hey, didn't a budget get passed too? Am I misremembering that? We passed a budget. It's been so long. We didn't close the government down. We yeah. didn't have debt ceiling foolishness. And look, there were th- look there were there were some things in there that that liberals could object to, but basically the budget the budget deal wasn't that bad. I mean, there there weren't any of the the really toxic poison pills that that right. progressives had worried about. Didn't even really come up. It felt like so, compromise again. I'm going to say another good slogan for this year would be uh, "Our bar got lowered," <laughs> and we cleared it. 2015. <laughs> The year the bar lowered. I, I think I think this is something that's going to like uh, uh, maybe draw this conversation in. But it's interesting to to sit here talking about Paul Ryan and and feeling this kind of newfound affinity for him. I think that one of the interesting things that happened over this over the course of this year is that it got weird. If you're a Republican, there oh, yeah. was a time there was a time when uh, it was just an article of faith understood the city wide that Paul Ryan was as institutional a conservative as you could get. And this was the year that he became almost an apostate because the 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 sense of where the where the center of the right has shifted. You can go back and find uh, uh interviews of uh of Walter Jones who's the you know hardcore leader of the Freedom Caucus 
Um, my favorite, actually, member of the Freedom Caucus, su- super anti-war, super anti-bank favors, but also, you know, sides with them on all sorts of, you know, stuff that I consider generally bonkers. But you can see him interviewing Paul Ryan three or four years ago about what a genius and wonderful person Paul Ryan is. And now <laughs> now Walter Jones is like loathing Paul Ryan's budget, uh, you know, funding the government leadership. Uh, yeah. That things, things have, have really gone to a strange place. They've turned on Grover Norquist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think the only thing weirder than what's happening in the climate is what's happening in the Republican Party right now. <laughs> well, I think, you know, Anna Marie, we, we've talked about this before, but I, I think the Republican Party now, not institutionally in Washington, but in the country writ large, is trying to sort out whether it wants to be the party of rich guys getting tax cuts uh, and, and then sort of exploiting um, people who don't benefit from those tax cuts with race baiting or whether it wants to be a sort of far right, uh, uh, you know, fa- essentially fa- neo-fascist party uh, along the lines of, of the right wing <laughs> parties of the uh, you see that they've had quite a bit of success in, in Europe. Um, but and, policy still mostly benefits the rich. Right. I mean, like, it's 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 just a difference here. It's almost a difference of how they sell it. Yeah. It's not, even, it's not like their policies have changed that much. I mean, that's the thing that happened in this year that you could say, I mean, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, it's just a thing that happened, which is that the the GOP's rhetoric and campaign strategy caught up with it. Like, the establishment's willingness to use the kind of rhetoric they use and to use the kind of, like, uh, you know, uh, race-baiting that they used, all those kind of sub-rosa, like, suddenly wound up creating an actual movement that endangers that establishment. And so to me, to my mind, uh, I, in a weird, twisted way, I, I kind of think that's a good thing um, because it, 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 lets, it, it lets everybody sort of air the truth and, and, and acknowledge what's, what's actually been going on. I, I feel like even two years ago, if you said, you know, the Republican Party base is, is they're, they're catering to a racist base, people would have said, well, look, not, not, not all Republicans. That's not, <laughs> not all Republicans. <laughs> Hashtag, no. Hashtag, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and look, it is true, not all Republicans. But, um, but, but if, if, if you brought that up, they would, they would accuse you of being unfair. And I feel like the, the Trump candidacy, um, in a lot of ways, has made that, has made that response moot. Uh, it has sort yeah. of nullified it. Um, and at least we know what we're talking about. But is that... Is that is that is it weird I don't know. to be optimistic about that? <laughs> it's a little weird. Um, I mean, I think you know it's funny. Like we, a lot of people. Um, well, <laughs> I feel like we're sort of doing this very strange best of show, which is that we're finding things that we normally would find terrible and kind of giving you reasons to think of them in a kind of optimistic light. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was and, great that Ryan Adams covered a Taylor Swift record instead of making new music. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I was going to say, like here's the silver lining. This is the silver lining episode. Um, which is the, the um, a lot of people have now heard of the Face in the Crowd, a Face in the Crowd movie, you know, the great Elia Kazan? Elia Kazan? Elia Kazan, yeah. And Elia Kazan movie. We don't um, know how to pronounce his name. It's, it's a great movie. Um, with uh, Andy Griffith as a sort of um, uh, populist, um, you know, demagogue uh, who finally who achieves great fame. And then, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, is undone in the end by a hot mic. And people were kind of using that sh- that movie as a metaphor or as an analog for Trump until people pointed out there's no such thing as a hot mic for Trump. He's always got a hot mic. That's yeah. There's no other side of him to show. But um, but I do think that the Republican Party has a hot mic moment, you know, like um, and and that's what you're talking about, I think, Zach, which is that they're being shown like in Trump is their hot mic, like 
you know, they're, they're, what they mean is actually being said out loud. Like what their true motivations are actually being said out loud, both in the sense that the, the distinction between the establishment and sort of the party base has become clear. Like the base understands very clearly that the establishment is not working, you know, they're not working in each other's best interests. And there's been a real revolt against the establishment. And then also, again, like I said, some of the rhetoric and the strategies that have been used um, uh, by the establishment for their own purposes have wound up creating a real movement that's, that's going to wind up, you know, fighting them. Uh, and I think, yes, that, you know, I mean, I mean, again, we're really searching, I feel like, for good good news here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you could I got some say, bad news to, to follow up with in a minute. Oh, good. So, yeah, <laughs> don't worry. The only spin I can put on it is... Um, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've known Jason for a long time. I think we've talked about this. Like, I'm a progressive. I'm a liberal. I'm, I'm pretty far to the left, but I'm not for one-party rule. You know, like, I, I believe in dialogue. I believe in healthy exchange of ideas. I believe in debate. Sometimes yeah. even unhealthy debate. I believe I believe in, 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 in hashing things out, and uh, I don't like the idea that the, that the the opposing party, the dominant opposing party in my country is, you know, a wild-eyed Alex Jones fan. I kind of agree so. with you. You know, I think I think that uh, eliminationism in politics is the thing you're supposed to grow out of once you get into the real world and understand that it's really about finding ways to work with people. And the way I've always kind of characterized the ideal tension between conservatism and liberalism, uh, on the assumption that both are necessary to society, because... Yeah. At, which at its, may be how we differ from classic conservatives. Right. <laughs> at, but at its root, conservatism is about preserving old institutions that have served right. as well. Liberalism is about pushing pushing boundaries. And I feel like, ideally, these two operate in a sort of tension between two wrestlers that are more or less e- equally matched. And at, at times appear to get the advantage. At times push the country one direction or the other. And you hope that when it's being pushed in that direction, it's being pushed for a purpose, a necessary need, something that preserves all of us instead of benefiting just a few of us. But what's very strange about the way the two wrestlers have been engaging lately is I feel like the conservative wrestler in this metaphor has suddenly pulled away from the clinch and is standing off to the side and uh, the 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 liberal wrestler has as a result of having no pressure in his face anymore fallen down on his face a little bit uh, and i think that <laughs> I, love I think your metaphor i think i'm really confused set, by this metaphor I, what, not I'm a wrestler. Say, what i'm trying to say is that like strong parties grow from strong opposition and i feel that a lot of liberals would look at their own party and say well this is not this is not ideal either we're having a debate right now whether it's worth uh, hiring Hillary Clinton to be the president of tweaking the system or Bernie Sanders, the guy who will toss the system and begin anew. And I think that one of the reasons we're at this point is because the liberal party in America has kind of lost its way a little bit as well. And it's because they haven't been forced into the same channels they're usually forced into by a competent conservative party. Well, right. I, I, on some level, I, f- I feel like the, the history of the Democratic Party shifted really abruptly in the 1990s, where suddenly economic policy was the, the, the traditional populist kind of economic policy that Democrats had had pursued was sort of jettisoned in favor of, of, of essentially a, a Reaganite economic policy. And 
And the party never really figured out what to do with that. And it, it, it seemed like, like it was basically cool with that until Elizabeth Warren came along. And Elizabeth Warren talking about the last 30 years being bad for the middle class is not just an indictment of Ronald Reagan and Republicans. It's, it's an indictment of the Clinton legacy. And with Hillary Clinton being the clear front runner right now, there are a lot of people who are really enthusiastic about Elizabeth Warren's message who also want to be enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton and don't really know what to do. And, and I feel like, you know, as, as hard as Bernie Sanders has worked to try and get out an alternative economic message, he is not as, as good a communicator as Elizabeth <laughs> Warren has been on, on these issues. He just isn't. No, and, he's and, not a good communicator, period. And like, right, Yeah, <laughs> I mean, basically. Uh, and and I, I think the, the level of support and enthusiasm that, that you see for Bernie Sanders is, is sort of a shade of what you would get with someone who actually, I think, was intellectually more thoroughly grounded in, in these types of ideas. And I feel like the party in general is just not quite, the party leadership is not quite ready to embrace that side of things. And even the people who, who are intellectually, I think, solid enough to, to convey these things, like, like Elizabeth Warren, um, are, are not, don't, I mean, I, I don't think that they think that the party's ready for it yet, which is why Elizabeth Warren's not running for president and why you see sort of the left energy going to, to you know, frankly, kind, kind of a random socialist dude from Vermont. I think that's a good analysis. I think actually that fits in with what Jason was saying, which is that, I mean, if you talk to people in the Democratic Party, they'll say this, which is that to a certain extent, it's, I don't want to say they've gotten lazy, it's not the right word, but it's, it's not, um, there is not, it's not vital. That's actually, that is, that is the right word. It's not a vital, like, you know, sort of place of ideas and also very dangerously up and coming candidates. I mean, that's like a real worry is, like, there aren't, like, a ton of people, like, getting involved, you know? Like, on, I mean, people, rec- candidate recruitment is, is a problem. Um, and, and, the, and the Republican Party is having this sort of separate problem, which is that it's just got, like, just go- it's going nuts. I mean, they've got a, plenty of candidates. <laughs> Lord knows. <laughs> right. I think that's one of the interesting stories of the year, though, Anna Marie. I mean, like, look, remember six months ago when, when everybody was saying, boy, the Democrats have no bench, but the Republicans have all these terrific candidates. It, it, it kind of looks like nobody's got terrific candidates right now, at least on the 2016 side. Something, yeah. something, passionate intensity, right? Yeah, um, all passionate. Um, before we go, anything you guys are looking forward to the next year? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I guess I have a morbid curiosity about how the Supreme Court is going to behave. Um, it, it, that's if we had, if we had done things that we were disappointed and saddened by, that would be on my list of 2015. Besides the uh, marriage equality, you know, decision, there were a lot of really disappointing ones. Um, that the, this court continues to be interesting to watch. Um, I am looking forward to the day after the election, also. Uh, <laughs> um, and I am looking forward to, I'll say this, this is something people said a bunch in 2015, but I'm still, I still feel like there's, there's more to enjoy, which is uh, fourth quarter Obama, um, spiking some football, doing some end zone dancing, like whatever metaphors you want to use for that, including non-sports ones. Um, I think uh, Obama uh, sort of finding a, a voice that he had not used as regularly, let's say, um, until 2015 has been a real joy, and I, I look forward to that happening more. Zach, anything you look forward to? Virginia basketball. Uh, <laughs> London, London Perantes, Tony Bennett, you know, those guys yeah. are doing great. Really, really looking forward to their year. Um, I got I to gotta say, I think the, the longer that we have... Um, 
the fascist demagogue in in this race, I think the, the coarser our political dialogue gets in in a, in a way that's actually courses is is understanding it. The more hateful the country gets, and uh, and I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit afraid of where things are going. Okay, but I'm always a pessimist, so that means things are just fine. Don't worry, people. Zach's down on things. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> All right. I'm just going to say I'm looking forward to maybe getting a new cat, and I'll leave it at that. Oh. oh. Well, that I expect full. I hope uh, said Katie gets a Twitter account. So. Oh. Regular update. I'll, I'll make sure you find out about my cat, but I'm not going to give it a Twitter account. Let's make 2016. Protect it from the internet. The <laughs> year of changing the internet for the better. Everybody, if you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that driving your car for work is a double-edged sword. You're either spending too much time tracking your mileage or you're guesstimating and you're losing money on your mileage. If you're driving for work and you're not using MileIQ, you're probably losing money fast. MileIQ, it's the solution you've been looking for. The number one mileage tracker app that's trusted by hundreds of thousands of Americans. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker that detects logs and calculates your drive for you automatically it's easy to use it keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud if you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile then you're probably burning money each time you take a drive in fact the average mile like you user logs 547 dollars a month in drives my like you does all this work for you you install it it runs in the background recording your trips it's your calculator and your memory and it's easy interface it's a breeze to use it lets you focus on what's important it's also one of the few apps in the App Store that's really going to make you money. It's not only going to make your life better by reducing human error, it's going to bring a new level of organization to everything you do. It's no wonder that so many people use MyLiQ, and it's not a surprise that this app has earned a bevy of five-star ratings in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. In fact, the folks at MyLiQ are so confident you'll join them, they're making a special offer just for you. Just text HAPPEN to 31996. You can start a 40-drive free trial. And if you create an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles. Stop losing money that you should be claiming. Take MileIQ out for a free 40-drive trial. Take 20% off an annual plan by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. Standard messaging and data rate supply. And continuing with our Happy New Year theme. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm with Zach Carter. Hi. Uh, on the phone with us is our good friend, Shaheen Nasirapur. Hi, Shaheen. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. We understand you're up in Boston. You understand you're getting some snow. Both confirmed. Both confirmed. We are getting <laughs> nothing. We are getting rain and San Diego's weather. And it's the worst and yet, I feel like in some level, on some level, uh, it's appropriate because if you are one of the many people who are employed in this town, uh, being Washington, D.C., who lobbies on behalf of the largest banks in America, uh, at least before Congress, you've had an entire year that's basically been like the Washington weather over the past week. It's just been kind of 50 degrees and raining all year. <laughs> and, and you're used to it being, you know, 80 degrees on the beach with, uh, you know, with a cocktail. Yeah, this year, bank lobbyists didn't get to pop so much Cristal, and um, it's literally one of the few things about 2015 and politics and policy that gives me joy. Take me through this this optimism I'm about to experience. 
Well, I, I, sad bank lobbyists and their sweet, sweet tears. With the caveat that that a lot of things went well for banks outside of Congress this year. Um, uh, don't, in, don't ruin this. In, in Congress, they I'll put it this way: they opened the year trying to gut the Volcker Rule. In Congress, they failed. They closed the year trying to gut a fiduciary duty rule, which requires investment advisors to act in the best interests of their clients. I know that sounds complicated and insane that someone would not want an investment advisor to be legally required to act in the best interests of his or her client, but but they we the, the bank lobby was trying to, to gut a rule that would do just that. Um, they failed at that. They also wanted to change the nature of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau so that it would be tied up with lots of red tape and, and be much harder for them to take regulatory and enforcement actions against against rogue banks. Um, they they failed at that. And that was kind of that was kind of the year for, for Congress. Um, Shaheen, you are our chief, I believe, financial and regulatory reporter. What jumped out at you over the course of the year? Oh, God, that's a pretty good question. Where do I begin? I don't know. Well, how about the regulatory side? So, um, to me, I felt like in Congress, banks, you know, the, the way that the congressional milieu is structured now, basically everybody gets a moonshot at the end of the year because Congress doesn't really pass legislation until right. there's, a, there's a big bill to fund the government at the end of the year. And then all your, your goodies are supposed to go in there. And the banks just got kicked in the teeth because they didn't get any of the stuff they wanted. And there was actually a second sort of sub-moonshot that happened earlier in the year. Uh, like a month before, called a highway bill, where suddenly we decided we were also going to do an independent funding bill for long-term highway funding, not just funding the federal government. And one of the pay-fors in this uh, in, <laughs> in this funding bill uh, took the form of a dividend, a special dividend that the Federal Reserve pays to all banks, just just by virtue of being a bank. And it's an amazing thing. Uh, it It is essentially, I, I believe, uh, in, in a, a proposal from the C- Congressional Progressive Caucus, they wanted to trim this, this dividend to one one and a half percent. It's currently at about six percent. This would have saved the country $17 billion. So the Fed is just paying banks $17 billion. Just for fun. To thank them for being banks. And this, that they, they ended up not getting the full seventeen billion. I, I think they they kind of basically cut it in half through some strange procedural gimmicks. But the banks just had had some money taken away from them. And not only did the banks have to go around, bank lobbyists have to come up with, you know, weird arguments for why this this money was take, being taken away. They had to publicly air them, and they don't make any sense. I mean, Janet Yellen, who is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and the the the, the Fed often serves as sort of the the, the best lobbyist for for the big banks in, in America was saying that she was worried that if they cut the dividend, that banks would refuse to participate in the Federal Reserve system. Um, Is there an alternate system they could participate in? No! Like the NAIA of, <laughs> of, of monetary systems? No, the Fed has the authority to regulate you whether you decide to be part of the Fed system or not. So you, there's nothing, there's, you, you get nothing from this. Um, and, and you can see, she was just sort of like, ah, oh, God, uh, the bank's going to be so pissed if they just take away this money from them. What am I going to do? Um, and so I, I felt like it was it was kind of emblematic of just not only did the banks not get anything they wanted in Congress, they actually lost some battles where Mitch McConnell was like, hey, man, this is free money on the table for a funding bill. And I'm sorry, I, I can make it I can make this thing a little bit lighter for you, but I'm not going to get rid of the whole thing. Um, and that, I thought that was that, that was kind of remarkable. But on the regulatory side, I think things are not as savvy. Um you know, the the Fed in particular continues to insist that uh, the living wills required by Dodd-Frank, the 2010 Wall Street reform law, uh, that banks have been required to submit are, are credible, or at least they, they won't say they are not credible. And Shaheen, can you tell us about what these living wills are? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And, and how they're supposed to function? Yes. So that's actually a question I can't answer. <laughs> right. So the living wills are basically, these are, um, it's basically a plan that every large bank in the U.S. has to come up with. Or they have, it's a plan that basically spells out how they're going to be dismantled if they're nearing failure. So if a big bank, let's say Citigroup or J.P. Morgan Chase, B&A, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, if any of these banks are nearing the point where they're just going to fail, they have to they prepare this blueprint for regulators and uh, for the institutions themselves to follow so that when they are failing, they do so in a very kind of coherent, logical manner where, you know, basically they're, they're kind of taken apart piece by piece before there's like this big disorderly failure where everyone freaks out. Um, counterparties are rushing to get money from them. People are lining up at ATMs trying to pull their money. Basically, you want to avoid all of that. Who writes these living wills, though? So the banks, they write the living wills themselves. I mean, they're, ba- they're basically telling regulators, here's how to take us apart if we're about to fail. And so the regulators follow this blueprint. And the issue right now with the living wills is the regulators have said that they don't necessarily trust the living wills that the banks have prepared. It's Wells Fargo is really the, yeah. Wells Fargo is the only bank that's really got a kind of a passing grade on its living will, and that's because Wells Fargo is much more. Um, it's a simpler bank compared to, like, let's say Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase. They're not in as many countries. They're not in as many activities. Um, and so the regulators are charged with kind of determining whether or not these blueprints are credible, and if they are not, they have the power to go in and dismantle these banks to the point where their living wills will be credible, where if they're nearing failure, if there is a crisis looming, government bureaucrats basically can go in and tell the banks, you know, okay, here's what you're going to do in order to make yourselves so simple uh, and so, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, unimportant that if you were to fail, society would survive. The economy would survive. Life would go on. Millions of people won't lose their savings or their homes or what have you. Every bank other than Wells Fargo is waiting for the Fed to tell it, or is waiting for the Fed and the FDIC to to judge whether or not their living wills are up to snuff. And the banks right now are kind of on, you know, they're, they're on the edge, right? If they, if the regulators tell them that their living wills are fine, 
then they can breathe easy. Uh, they can keep engaging in the same activities they're engaging in. They can keep making money hand over fist, and they don't really have to worry about the possibility of being dismantled piece by piece. Dodd-Frank passed in 2010. It's not a new law now. These living wills... More than five years. Right, have, and they have not been up to snuff for, for a long time. They've had a long time to get this right, and it hasn't happened. This will be the life is pain moment from this, uh, this podcast. <laughs> the, the Dodd-Frank, oh, well, for, for, all the, for all the good things that it's done, uh, I mean, particularly the creation of the CFPB, um, you know, it's it's just actually not a very strong piece of legislation if regulators don't want it to be strong. I mean, I, this may be a newsflash to most people, but a lot of the issues that Dodd-Frank sought to fix, so for example, the way banks pay their employees, right? The, every, you know, kind of the common criticism is that Wall Street, um, they incentivize their traders and bankers and, and salesmen to take these ridiculous risks in order to generate these outsized payments and bonuses for themselves. And so if it works out, those gains are private. It's, those are privatized gains, right? The, the bank and its employees, they're the ones who share in those profits. But if there are huge losses and that leads to a bank needing a bailout, those losses are socialized, right? Everyone else bears the cost of a trader's um, you know, risky bet gone wrong. A lot of these things that Dodd-Frank sought to fix, regulators already had the authority to take action before Dodd-Frank. You know, when it comes to, like, employee banker pay, the regulators had the authority to tell the banks, okay, look, if you guys want to pay your traders, you know, to take out, you know, you guys are not allowed to pay your traders in a way that incentivizes them to take these outsized risks where if the bet goes wrong, uh, you guys are going to need to be bailed up by taxpayers. I mean, regulators had that authority. They didn't do it. They didn't exercise right. it. Uh, demanding higher capital ratios for banks, like basically telling banks, don't borrow as much money. Again, regulators had that authority before the crisis. They didn't really exercise it. I mean, the whole thing about Dodd-Frank and regulation, it's only good and worthwhile if the regulators actually use the authority they have. If they don't, it doesn't matter really what laws we pass giving regulators more power because they're not exercising the power of the law is worthless. Anything else about this year strike you guys? The power of the Fed is now, I mean, the Fed has been under assault, um, you know, ever since the crisis. Uh, Dodd-Frank, you know, originally lawmakers wanted to pair back the power of the Fed because the Fed had failed so spectacularly um, in the run-up to the crisis. Um you know, both on a regulatory side and arguably kind of on a, you know, managing the U.S. economy side. And the Fed came out of Dodd-Frank with much more power, much more authority. And then in 2015, we saw both Republicans and Democrats starting to think, okay, you know what, have we given the Fed too much power? Is the Fed no longer really accountable? Maybe we should take some of that power back. So I thought that was quite notable to me, um, both Democrats and Republicans coming together even if it's on the fringes, coming together and you know deciding maybe it's time to pare back some of the extraordinary power that the Fed has. That was notable. Uh, another thing to me, honestly, with the Republican presidential candidates now trying to um, – they're all going out and saying that we need to increase capital levels at the nation's largest banks. You know, they all want to get rid of Dodd-Frank and ease regulation uh, – just not for banks, but for industries across the board. But when they say that, they pair that argument with, you know what, but 
let's get rid of all these regulations, but let's require banks, the biggest banks, to borrow less money. Um, yeah. Let's make them fund themselves more with equity. And I yeah, think Bush that's kind of a... Particular. Jeb Bush has said it. I think it's kind of a big deal because you have, look, a lot of these establishment Republicans, Jeb Bush and the rest, these guys are seen as like allies of Wall Street, right? They made money on Wall Street. A lot of their donors are from Wall Street. A lot of their top advisors used to work on Wall Street. They favor policies that favor Wall Street. But here they are saying, we need to raise capital levels beyond where they already are. And they are way higher now than they were, you know, five, seven years ago. Uh, five years ago when Dodd-Frank passed, seven years ago during the height of the crisis. And the fact that they're saying, let's raise it even more, I mean, what that to me is quite significant. If we're going to talk about resolution authority or living wills, I mean, these are sort of the death panels of banks. Right. But, right. The, but the life-saving preventative medicine is just simply better capitalization. And right. and it's I mean, look, I don't really trust that these guys are, are actually going to get into the office and tell the Fed to raise capital requirements. I don't really think they're going to do that. But it does show that 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 understanding is now so universal within the public sphere that even people like Jeb Bush can't lie about it in front of a Republican debate audience. That's, that to me, that's, yeah. that is a significant change and shift in, in sort of at least what's what's acceptable to say in public. Right. And so now you kind of think. Okay, so banks have been, I, I remember going to this industry conference like a couple days within a few, within like two or three days after Dodd-Frank had passed. And I remember at the time, you know, these senior executives in, on Wall Street were talking about, okay, when is the fix-it bill coming? You know, the bill, the law that comes that fixes all the things that Wall Street found objectionable in Dodd-Frank. And so, you know, they've been waiting basically like five years five plus years for this big fix to bill to come and it hasn't come yet. And I wonder if, if you have Republican presidential candidates, leading Republican presidential candidates talking about increasing capital levels for big banks. I wonder if it means that like we're now entering an era where the biggest wall street banks are going to have permanently like high levels of capital, which means they can't simply go out and borrow, you know, 33, 40 times, um, their equity to fund, you know, increasing profits. They can't go out and like lever up and take these huge risks, hoping to generate these outsized profits. What I find, what I find really funny about this is that the admonishment is always government should be run like a business. Your household should be run like a business, meaning that you spend the money you have and you don't buy a lot of dumb stuff on credit. Well, maybe banks should be run like a business. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened.
Hey everybody, it's the new year. Right now, I'm with <laughs> Zach Carter. That's me. And Jennifer Bendry, aka That's me. Jen Bendry. Might hear some uh, transient dog noise because we're also joined by my dog Pepper in the studio. Pepper, say hi. Oh, I thought that I literally thought that was her. <laughs> I <Okay>. was thinking. <laughs> so uh, we are. We had a really good. Uh, we had a really good request from a listener uh, not too long ago, uh, who was interested in uh, appointments and nominations that have been left on the table. These were talking about uh, people that President Obama has uh, attempted to appoint to positions. He's got a lot of judicial nominations out there. Uh, and I thought I'd fold this into kind of a start of the new year, end of last year, unfinished business on Congress. Jen, how are we doing on those nominations and appointments? Well, God bless that that listener, first of all, because as someone who covers nominations regularly, it's hard to find people who get excited about the subject. She was like, I want to hear from Bendry. God bless her wherever she is. (laughs) It was a pretty terrible year, actually, for for nominations. Pretty crappy. There are uh, all kinds of things they they left undone. They, They left to go home for the holidays with 19 judicial nominees sitting ready for a vote on the Senate floor. They all cleared the committee at some point in the last year on a voice vote, so there's no controversy for any of them. Some of them would fill a judicial emergency, which is a court that just has a completely overwhelmed caseload to the point where it's, like, unbelievable that a judge is handling that many cases. Um, And they just went home. They just said, we don't want to move 19 ready federal judge nominees because basically because they're President Obama's nominees... (laughs) <laughs> and because we don't like President Obama. And to be clear, when you say they cleared by a voice vote, that means nobody voted against it. Right. When they get yeah. voted out of, they have to go through a committee first, and then they go to the floor. And all 19 of these nominees cleared the committee on a voice vote. That means they're so non-controversial and so broadly supported that they don't even muster up the energy to to vote, <laughs> like to actually have a vote. <laughs> so who's technically in charge of making sure this vote happens in the Senate? Mitch McConnell. Oh, so the, the same, the same guy. Leader. The same guy who was just like, oh, 9-11 first responders, let them die slowly and painfully. Same guy. That guy. Same yeah, guy. okay. Cool, well, is, cool so, guy. But, but is, is this uh, you know, just a, a McConnell sort of leadership tactic, or is this something that, that rank-and-file Senate Republicans also tend to support? It all stems from Mitch McConnell. I mean, it's, a, it's part of a broader strategy to prevent President Obama from putting his federal judge nominees in courts. I mean, these are lifetime appointments. So if, if a president's going to have any legacy, it's going to be one of a few things, and it's going to be war and judges. <laughs> Those are things that last they great are forever. Yeah. I mean, great, and, great job. And so that's one of their main uh, efforts in the Senate is to prevent him from filling out courts. And uh, they've been very effective this year. They confirmed the least number of judges this year that than they than the Senate has done in more than a cent, half a century. And they, they've they've been confirming very few judges over time, right? Wasn't it? Uh, didn't Harry Reid sort of change the back when when uh, Democrats were in the majority? Weren't there some sort of procedural tactics to the way the Senate operated over? as a result of frustration that, that Reid had over filibustering of, uh, of of judge nominees? So but when Democrats controlled the Senate, that which was for several years before this past year, um, they were still running up against walls with Republicans blocking nominees. They were using all kinds of procedural rules to prevent nominees from getting votes. And so toward the end of 2013, Harry Reid, who was running the Senate, said, you know what? Screw it. We're going to change the rules so it's easier to move forward with, with judicial nominees change the rules, change the filibuster rules specifically. So instead of taking 60 votes 
to move forward on a nominee. Now it only takes 51. How did these 19 judges get left behind? They got left behind because uh, Mitch McConnell won't give them a vote. That's all it comes down but to. But weren't they, weren't they pending prior to this? Or are they re- really literally, these are all post-handover in the Senate? So the, the 19 judges from 2015 that just okay. are, are just, they just left, the senators left and didn't vote on them. They just collected throughout the year. Okay. That's it. Okay. So then they're all ready to go, and it's kind of a Senate tradition that end of the year, well, whoever's still on the floor and has no controversy, let's just clear them. And so they've stopped doing that. Can't Obama use a recess appointment with all these people into space? He could if the Senate and House go into recess, but it's it starts to get very technical here. They're not technically in recess. How they are technically they not are technically in recess? <laughs> they've all gone home. Th- well, they've literally all gone home, but there's a certain... Um, you have to declare that we are in recess. If you don't say that, you can say they are... Um, They're just... I'm, I'm forgetting what the term is, but it's another Senate term versus recess. We are... <laughs> we are... Uh, basically, we are in a holding pattern. Okay, okay. Is what we're because, in. Like, because in most American jobs, places of employment, if you leave your job and you haven't declared, hey, I'll be gone, or haven't gotten permission, the technical term for that is fucking off. You're fucking off. <laughs> no, literally, that's the technical I, term I for it. I it's actually screwing around, Jason. I think you're... Oh, you know what? Okay, we can beg to differ on this. They may be screwing around. They might be fucking off. But, but so, so they haven't... So the Senate's not in recess. And I don't think the House is either. And it's something that they have been doing specifically since Obama became president. Doesn't some schmuck have to, like, sit around in Washington to open and close the Senate there's every a, day? There's a certain amount of time that has to go by before someone has to come in. <laughs> literally come in and, like, gavel in and say something, and then they gavel out. And then they usually, in the House, I know they bring in, like, a Maryland congressman or congresswoman <laughs> who can easily come to D.C., walk into the chamber, gavel in, say, like, we are now... In, in this session, status, yeah, and then now we're out of that status, and I'm going to go home. Wouldn't it be a fun caper if, like, we got a group of people together and, like, found out who was supposed to come to D.C. to gavel in these things? And just for the sure hell of it, just, like, I don't know, kidnap them for a period of time or mm. keep them from coming to work? It sounds like a like you have like zany, comedy. Like, <laughs> zany, like, people, like, you know, like we could have higher improv actors like put construction beams in their place and they're like oh shocks I gotta walk the long way to work now I, I'm just a little worried about formally the making cab. jokes about kidnapping members of Congress it sounds like something that uh, DHS or the FBI would come after us for not a <laughs> <laughs> you know one thing one thing that has happened let's see them get funding to put me out of business one thing that has happened is uh, in the house Republicans were doing this one winter and they came in or maybe it was the summer but it was a long break Someone came in to do the quick gavel in, we're in session, and then gavel out, we're out of session kind of thing. And during that, literally in that window of when they said gavel in and gavel out, a Democrat was there on the House floor ready to try to use that teeny window to force a vote on something. (laughs) (laughs) And I think they were both Maryland members. It was like a Maryland Republican gaveling in and then a Maryland Democrat who knew they were going to be coming. So was waiting and they said, hey, I have a motion to make and... And there was this really awkward, quick scuffle about, can they do that? To me, this is and the then worst. They, in the end, they didn't do it. This is the worst of all worlds because the because not only are we not getting Congress in session, but we're incentivizing Maryland drivers to come to Washington, D.C. and drive on our <laughs> roads. And there's like no good 
ever comes from that. that that's, that's for everybody who's not from the Beltway area. Maryland drivers have a terrible reputation uh, for being bad drivers and like parking on the sidewalk and stuff. So to their mind, they have a great reputation for being <laughs> bad drivers. I wonder if this is just Jason and, and myself having a Virginia bias. No, it's, really, it's literally not. They're known the world over for being the worst drivers in the world. Well, hey, can I give a shout out to the, uh, to the, to the listener who suggested we do this topic? Her name is Joe Mears. She's a, a loyal listener, a loyal reader. So we want to thank her a lot for, uh, for the suggestion. We think it's a really cool topic. And well, you know, we also to to follow on what uh, with Joe's desire for unfinished business. I want to spend a little bit of time. Just a, I think we have a couple of minutes left in this segment. We want to talk about the oomph, 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 right? Oomph, yes, oomph. yeah. The the, the worsen, oomph and worsen. Because this to me beyond 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 the uh, beyond the uh, appointments and nominations, this is the granddaddy of all unfinished business. The authorization of these. <laughs> of military force. We're going on, I don't know how many consecutive months now we've been fighting nominally fighting, uh, Daesh in Iraq and Syria. Also known as ISIS or ISIL for those of you who aren't right. following the terminology game. It's, it's weird that we're just, that we, that Daesh is the, the name you use when you want to insult ISIS when we could just as well use, uh, Psychotic death cult. Yeah, psychotic death cult or fart monsters. <laughs> uh, almost anything. Like, what would offend them the most? I'll use that. Um, but but uh, we're 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 sitting here. We ha- we're no closer to having an uh, an off at the hand for for this. No. And what's what's been interesting is we've been bombing. ISIS since August of 2014. So that's almost a year and a half. I guess it is a year and a half. And we've spent more than $5 billion on this. And what has changed over time hasn't really been an effort to vote to authorize this war, but but to talk about how something must be done, (laughs) which is sort of... (laughs) It's funny, except it's not, because... It's it's some very <laughs> outraged members of Congress saying we must do something about this. You, you and then can, they don't do anything and, and, about and, and, it. But is, is and there, then they keep spending money on on fighting more. But is is there a reason why they don't want to vote for something? I mean, they, they vote to to appropriate funds for the war. Why why not vote to to say here are the parameters? Can I the offer a theory? I'll off, let me offer a theory, and and Jen, you can tell me if I'm right. I think that the reason Congress doesn't put their name on the dotted line on a new authorization for the use of military force is because Congress would like to reserve the right to criticize the quote, scare quote, war effort. And if they themselves have somehow authorized this war effort, it becomes more complicated for them to say, it's now working out the way we want it to. Uh, And if if the war effort starts going great, then why didn't you do this earlier? This is terrific. And so the moment they become wrapped up into into the, the effort, then they become on the hook for criticism of what goes on. They become stakeholders in the war. Right now they are like uh, the the Waldorf and Statler of this war, and they're not the Muppets. Jen? You're, that's absolutely right. The, Boom! Swish! <laughs> on this! They don't, they don't want their fingerprints on this. They want to be able to criticize Obama on this. And when I say they, I mean primarily Republicans. They want to criticize Obama on this without having to say, you know, having their fingerprints on, the, on a vote to approve it in the first place. But then you could say, well, they're voting to fund it. 
Right. So isn't that something? Well, you can't you can't deny funds to our troops. Yeah. So, but, but, but Obama's <laughs> that's, strategy. That's the line is that they'll we, give. You know, you know, we we have a serious problems with his strategy, but we're gonna we can't leave the troops in the lurch. Like that's the that's the comeback. But right. you see this in the presidential contest too. I mean, we're all they, out of ideas. Everybody in the 2016 nomination. You know, I agree, Pepper. Everyone in the 2016 nomination. You know, Ted Cruz, whoever. Ted Cruz is going around saying, you know, I want to carpet bomb ISIS. Okay, which sounds like you're going to just bomb the hell out of cities. And he says, you know, we're going to make the, the sand same glows. glows. Yeah. And then you find out what his actual strategy is. And it's, it's actually, oh, no, no, I would run targeted bombing campaigns against against ISIS fighters and the ISIS military. I'd call it and, carpet And avoid bombing. civilians. I'm going to call that carpet bombing. But it turns out that his strategy is basically what the Obama administration is currently doing. And Only it's much more it convenient. Right. It's much more convenient for. for and I mean, and this is true. To Ted Cruz, war is about branding. It's not about strategy. Actually, to all these people, war is about branding. I mean, Marco Rubio, strategy. who's supposedly the establishment reasonable guy, has, you know, makes deploys similar tactics rhetorically, where he says, you know, Obama's weak. He's feckless. He doesn't care about about our military. He's doing nothing. And then you find out what what Rubio's strategy is, and it's basically what the administration is currently doing. I'll be feckful. <laughs> I'll be full of feck. <laughs> I'm gonna feck off. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, um, so no umph. No umph. However, an interesting shift in the last couple of weeks is that Paul Ryan is suddenly sounding like he wants to push this issue in 2016. So that kind of came out of nowhere. It does. Well, he's got nothing to do, so he may as well do something. He's right? got a few things to do, but... Not a lot, though. Uh, you know, run the house, whatever. It's an easy but, job. It's yeah, such an easy it's job. such a pleasant job, too. Well, now it's really easy because <laughs> all the major hurdles have been hurdled. Thanks to John Boehner. They've left Ryan with a pretty, I don't know, easy way to land his plane every day. Well, he's, I mean, he's got to have to deal with, you know, all the, the conservatives pushing for abortion-related issues and every bill they try to pass, which, you know, Paul, Paul Ryan's a budget nerd. He wants to get things funded and done and be responsible. He doesn't want to deal with defunding Obamacare 50 more times and, and defunding <laughs> parent, Planned Parenthood 50 more times. You know, he wants to, like, be the budget guy. And he also probably wants to run for president one day. So does he really want to be the chump in there, just like passing these stupid bills? See, that's remarkable. I r- literally don't think he wants to run for president. Oh, I literally think he wants to I run for president. Do. Oh, wow. He's don't taking... forget he ran for vice president already. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I think probably the I think probably that scarred him. Well, I mean, look. This is the guy who wanted to stay home and didn't, didn't want to go home Then why did he weekend? run for vice president of the but United that States? Was, that was last cycle. It wasn't that long ago. Between He's now a young and guy. Then, between now and then, his big sticking point for taking over the speakership of the house was but I want to spend weekends with my family. Yeah, yeah, they all say that. Yeah, you don't and guess what? A lot of us actually do want that. They just don't say that cuz they don't want to sound like they're not good leaders. Doesn't sound presidential to me. I want to spend weekends with my family. So do I. Oh, he'll be able to spend that by the time he's running. I mean, I think he just said that cuz he didn't want to be speaker. Yeah. Not yeah. because he doesn't want to be in the White House. We'll see. We'll see. It's not running now. No. Probably could use a Republican in the race. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what happened this year. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero with technical assistance from Peter James Callahan and Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki, who's going to let us know when it's weird to still have our Christmas tree up. Right, Caitlin? Just email me or something. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Anna Marie Cox, the host of the Brew Haha podcast and writer of words at the New York Times and the Daily Beast as well as Huffington Post reporters Jen Bendry, Zach Carter, and Shaheen Nasirapur. This podcast was sponsored by MileIQ, the mileage tracker app that's helping hundreds of thousands of working Americans save time and money. 
So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there and subscribe to them. Tell your friends about them. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. It's because of you that we can say that we're looking forward to doing more of this nonsense next year. Thanks so much, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.